And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Stroud on the Coot Street Podcast! And you do that so well. I hate to sort of step on your fade, because we could spend the first ten minutes of the five podcast with that, with that fade out. You'd think I'd have had the brains to just record it and then um, clip it on the front every time, right? <laughs> um, pe- people would note the subtle... Subtle similarities. They want to. They want to know that you're going to completely screw it up one week. As do I. Oh, thank you very much. I love that. It, it, it's a, that's well, the, the uncertain air of the, you know sort of people working live without a tightrope, yeah, or with, with live well, with a tightrope without a net. Well, Hopefully with a tightrope, but with without a net. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought I thought the one that I did for um, our aborted Wiscon podcast was particularly good, but that will never be heard. Well, it's do, do, did you save any of that recording? You, you mean the ten minutes or so? Yeah, I've got ten minutes of choppy well, stuff. So, well, yeah, this is a, well, this is a problem which we've run into, and I suspect we're not the only ones of trying to do a, a a podcast, you know, using Skype from a hotel, which in this case was entirely unreliable. Yeah. Um, and and and, it, and this I've heard this has happened to us before. So, um, and it's too bad because we were having a wonderful discussion with our guests who will cheerfully come back with us. Um, but every time we do this sort of thing, we have to wonder, uh, is, is the hotel going to work? Hotel Wi-Fi is one of the scandals of the Western world. Something should be done about it. There should be a government commission. <laughs> Can I just say that there should be a hashtag on that, first world problems? Um, mm-hmm. You know, if the greatest problem in your life is that you've got unreliable hotel Wi-Fi, then, oh. you, know, <laughs> you know, life isn't too bad, is it? Well, I mean, what if I were, you know, what if I were, I don't know, an a, a, a army general trying to launch missiles using hotel Wi-Fi and it, it just dropped out in the middle? I think Somehow they would have I, had some other way of doing it, Gary. I don't know they're yeah. going to, I mean, I don't think they're going to depend on Skype to start World War Three. Well, one of the reasons I'm, I'm um, especially sad that we lost the discussion is that Wiscon is a very good convention for just hanging out with people yes um and it's uh it's in madison wisconsin which is among my favorite cities in the world for conventions yeah um, simply because it has a wonderful selection of restaurants that are reasonably priced and reasonably close and, and and a lot of interesting people the problem and one of the problems we had was one of our guests should we mention who the guests were because sure i mean because well, of course I mean, I, we should preference you know preface because we don't that you are only at, not even hours returned from Madison, Wisconsin, home of Wisconsin, which is probably, probably still, which is probably still just reaching its conclusion, even as we as we talk. As as, as we talk, the Tiptree Award ceremony is probably just underway, um, and uh, one of the um, um, one of the recipients could not make it. Uh, Caitlin Kernan uh, was not able to be there. Uh, uh, Karini uh, Salam is there. I did not get a chance to talk to her, um, but we had um, one, one of the people that I always look forward to seeing there because she lives nearby and and and, and can get there easily is, is is Mary Rickard or M Rickard as she is known to um, mm-hmm. every short story reader who is remotely literate. Uh, so she and, and and she and Christopher Barzak are both Midwesterners. They both written very good short stories, and we were talking starting to talk a little bit about that. The other problem with recording something at a convention is that somebody always has some place they have to be. Yes. So you then have to, you, and, and this has happened to us too, where you have to slot the podcast in between people's schedules. Yes. And Christopher, I'm sure, wouldn't mind my mentioning that he was the host of karaoke. And he, he probably wouldn't mind my mentioning that I didn't go to it. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. So it's... Um, it's also an interesting convention in this sense uh, that um, that it, it, it's a it's a convention with a point of view, yeah. and there are not too many of those. Uh, that is, uh, it's obviously a feminist convention. It's the yes. world's largest feminist science fiction convention, which it has been for for decades now. Um, the and that's essentially the focus. It's not the agenda because there are a lot of what you might call agendas within that whole realm yeah. of okay. feminist science. There's third wave, fourth wave. ReaderCon has an agenda, uh, has, has, a, has a point of view, which is which is implicit in its title. It wants to talk about reading yeah. books. It doesn't want to talk about gaming. 
It doesn't want to talk about media. It doesn't want to talk yeah. about movies. It wants to talk about reading. And that's been its focus. Um, and I can't think of too many other conventions that actually have that clear a focus. There's not really a hard SF convention, for example, is there? No, there's, I don't think there is. Or I think there might have been by default at some point in the history of the field. You know, I mm. suspect that a Worldcon in 1955, what by default was a hard SF convention. I suspect that's true. Uh, but I'm not aware of one, though. There, who knows? There are so many conventions out there now. I think we still live in a world where, uh, you know, someone could attend a convention every weekend if they're in North America. I think it's probably true. Uh, and certainly, I seem to recall hearing apocryphal stories of various, you know, sort of authors who were doing very poorly financially, able to sort of keep themselves afloat by traveling sort of to, from convention to convention. Uh, staying as guests and, you know, not having to sort of pick up the bill too often. I think that's been true as, as well. It may be less true now, but yeah. it certainly is. Um, uh, one of the things, well, that's one of the things, like I say, you meet writers who are, ex well, and it bothers me about the field in general. Some of the finest writers in our field um, are not really making a living at it yeah. and probably won't. Uh, so to some extent, a convention is is, is a way of their joining in with the community, it's a way of um, being able to connect with fans, and it's it's I think in some cases keeps them going. Yeah. Um, in other words, I think the whole idea of fandom, which we have sometimes said semi-critical things about <laughs> um, on this podcast, mm -hmm. is a very valuable support system, not only for a lot of fans for for whom it is a a, a large part of their social life. We've talked about the people who are. I don't know, optometrists in their daily lives and in, in the weekends, you know, they get into their Doctor Who outfit. Uh, but I think for writers as well, not getting invited to the major literary conventions, not getting nominated for National Book Awards and so forth, um, a convention like this is a sense that you have readers and they care passionately about what you do. Yes. And I love to see writers intercepted in the hallway by somebody who... Uh, gushingly will say, I love your work, please keep it up. Um, because by and large, not very many publishers are saying that to writers these days. <laughs> that is true. That th th These are impecunious times, Gary, and publishers have less money to be doing those things. And even for the exactly. conventions that I attend, what I've noticed is that uh, when I first started attending conventions in North America, you could depend on there being major publisher parties every weekend. Mm -hmm. Uh, certainly back as, in 2002 when I was going to the Worldcon and then after. Mm. And I remember clearly at the one time I've been in Madison when I was there for the 2005 Worldcon, World Fantasy Convention, mm. uh, there were parties, you know, three, two or three nights of the, of the convention, there were major publisher parties. Mm. Uh, but I think as of about 2008 or nine, they all began to disappear. They uh, began to disappear except uh, there was a tour party at, at, at Wisconsin. And tour has been very good about doing that and supporting its writers in that sense. But of the, of the publishers that are largely mainstream, they're the only ones I can think of that do this regularly. Yeah. I'm going to be very interested when we get to London in um, a handful of months, in five months, mm -hmm. to see whether um, we will uh, there will be a major publisher party there. I'm hoping maybe Golans, who are currently, in my opinion, as I've said before, the leading science fiction imprint in the world at the moment, might host something and we'd get, we'd get to meet everybody there. We get that well, and and then then we will do pod, we will do podcasts with the audio dropping out on a regular basis. I'm sure. No, no, the podcast the audio won't be dropping out because we'll be together, Gary. Oh, actually, we'll be together. I keep forgetting that. So that won't yeah, be, when you that won't in the same room. We, yeah. we, can a, we can record a podcast without the need of Wi-Fi. That's wonderful. Yeah. That won't be the Wi-Fi. That'll be the alcohol dropping us out. Well, that'll happen too. Yes, that will happen. Um, it does occur, occur to me to ask: Is ReaderCon? unique these days in being one of the few conventions whose special theme, because I was thinking about what you're saying about WISCON and why it's important uh -huh. that there's, there is a, fe a feminist science fiction convention. Uh, because, you know, as a, a node from which conversation about this can emanate, is, is Ritacon unique in the f fact that it's actually based on a, a medium rather than anything else? Uh, it's the only one I can think of that... Um that focuses very much on reading. Now, world fantasy, to some extent, does. It does. I mean, world fantasy has shied away from media awards, from recognizing 
uh, film and TV stars or directors or, or gamers or, or that sort of thing. But apart from that, I think ReaderCon is, and, and some people might think it's, it's, it's retro in that sense. And to some extent, it's true that you can't draw a line among writers between yeah. those who are working in the gaming industry and those who are writing novels. True. Um, but I, I, do, I do think that ReaderCon has been, well, I think World Fantasy, I know, has been mocked for being out of date. Uh, for not, yeah. you know, for not, for, for example, allowing comic books into the dealer's room. Uh, and I know that when there was talk about running a world fantasy convention here in Australia, which is still discussed, mm-hmm. that several local people who might have been involved have been very scathing in their criticism of world fantasy for that sort of reason. Though I mm-hmm. think they kind of missed the point. Um, it also occurs to me to wonder, does this tie, how does this tie in with something like Stephen King's recent announcement about, about his book Joyland? That he's not going to release an e- e- ebook. I think, well, he is, uh, interestingly enough, making a point which probably only Stephen King can make. Um, but it's um, you know it's, it's, it's like issuing a serial novel a few years ago. It's like uh, publishing a, a mass market paperback. Uh, I think he wants to call attention to the issue, but I think he knows as well as anyone else that it's uh, it's not going to change the direction that the world is moving in. Oh, Lord, no, I don't think he's – well, I would think he'd be very naive if he thought that were the case. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I suspect even if he were to turn around and withdraw all of the e-books of all of his novels, I don't mm. think it would make a difference. I was bemused to see P, uh, Publishers Weekly writing a piece uh, where someone was saying, you know, sort of, don't do this, you know, sort of, you're only sort of harming readers, uh, which I thought was perhaps overstating the case – I mean, it is one Stephen King novel of which there are right. there is no shortage, and you know, yet uh, some people were offended. I think because King, King basically said you could sort of get up and walk out of the house and go to a bookstore, uh, which some people took amiss, mm. and, and it overlooked the fact that ninety percent of them will probably order it online anyway. Well, they will order it online anyway, and uh, the the other problem, which is something that I suppose people and Stephen King is getting into the age range like I am. I don't know. Where you think, okay, yeah, people should go down to the corner bookstore. There is no more corner bookstore. No, no, there's not. Uh, I, I don't know what proportion of the – I read some statistic, and I, I, some enormous proportion of the American population is not within 10 miles or so of any kind of a bookstore. Yeah. Uh, when, when you get outside the major areas, you know, the, I, I'm not just talking about the, the collapse of borders and the yeah. shrinkage of Barnes & Noble, but uh, not too long ago there would be um, – um, uh, what was the? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember the bookstore chain that was in every little Crown? shopping mall. That was, was well, it no, it's not. It was not Crown. Uh, There's a bunch of them anyway. It, yeah, whatever. And they would not have large selections, but every shopping mall in the United States would have one of the Walden books. Is what I'm thinking. Okay, yeah. And Walden books was everywhere, and it, it, you couldn't buy. Um, you certainly couldn't buy a, uh, something from Aqueduct or Small Beer in a Walden books, but the new Stephen King novel would always be there. Yes, and and that even that is gone now to some extent. So you're right; people are going to order the book online. He may want them to read the physical book, but it's still not going to save the bookstores. No, it's definitely not going to save the bookstores. Nothing is going to. Uh, uh, sadly, I think, and I think it's a greater loss than we realize. And I know that sounds very, um, oh, very. Backward looking, but it seems to me there was there was a, a a benefit to be had in having physical bookstores where you can find things unexpectedly. The actual model for buying books online is very poor when it comes to accidental discovery. Uh, it's all exactly. based it's all based around uh, you know, finding that thing that you want and getting it, you know, cheaply, and that it certainly does deliver to you. But you're not going to go in and unexpectedly you know, buy something unexpectedly. Really, I don't think. Uh, and I. I I am disappointed because, I mean, one of the things when I first started tra- traveling to the United States, which was regular – I first went in 93 and was regularly visiting from about not from about mm, early 94 onwards maybe. And it was the number of bookstores and music stores that was one of the great you know, pleasures that I got from, from living there. You could reliably mm-hmm. know there were multiple chains of both everywhere. Uh, the street that I lived on in Oakland had several bookstores around it, and it was fantastic. Now – there's nothing, you know. There's a few chains here, here in in Perth where I live. You know, it used to be that there were multiple chains for, for of media outlets. You know, sort of for music and DVDs and books. Now I think there's one chain that covers all of the um, DVD music outlets stuff, 
and, mm. and a, a bunch of independents and one ailing chain for for bookstores. So you know, I mean, and the bookstore, the, the chains, are, the, the, the some of the independents are great because we're in that strange transitional phase where it, the book market won't support a lot of large chain bookstores, but it can support a small number of good large independents if you're fortunate. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I've seen figures recently. Yeah, the, the, I've seen figures recently that, that that independent bookstores actually reported a slight increase in sales in the United States last year. Yeah, uh, independent, including used bookstores, I guess, and uh, new and used combined. I don't know if that means anything other than the fact that there's a whether it's bottomed out is another question. But I'm beginning to see bookstores looking like. The few remaining record stores, which tend, at least in Chicago, to be vinyl stores. Yeah. Um, they carry a bunch of CDs, but they're really collectors' yeah. specialty shops. And, I mean, for the bookstores, I mean, I think this period probably is an artifact of a shrinking market, unfortunately. Uh, though, as people keep saying, before we get too doom and gloomy again, people are still reading. Well, my question is, and this is something we want to bring up with some of our forthcoming guests who are younger readers – uh, wh- how do people find things now? You said it's difficult to serendipitously discover a book in a bookstore. Uh, but most of the people I know, when you start about edging, talk about edging into science fiction, just found a book by accident at some point. Uh, they may have had parents that read science fiction. They may have had uh, a teacher who recommended it. They may have gone to the public library. Uh, but by and large, there was always that discovery of a book that you'd never heard of, and it was just there in a section you were looking at. Part of my doctoral dissertation was based on my discovery when I was in college of George MacDonald. Um, And George MacDonald is not going to be in any new bookstore anywhere, Uh, but he was there in a used bookstore, and I'd never heard of this guy. I started reading Fantasies. Uh, And I've talked to other people who've discovered oddball books, including our sort of sort of favorite perennial topic are A. Lafferty, who yeah. we'll be talking about in future podcasts. How do people find a writer like that? How do people enter the field today uh, when it's no longer a field where the way you learn about science fiction is you would read fantasy and science fiction and and analog and Asimov's, yeah. or before that, you know, uh, and, and you would join the science fiction book club. I don't think that's the way people enter the field. I don't think that's where new writers come from anymore. No, I, I suspect it's not. I mean, uh, there is the, the widely accepted view that science fictional things are part of the broader culture, so you pick that up. And then you pick up awareness of the field by stumbling through things by word of mouth, by social media, by other recommendation channels. Uh, the way that I and probably you would have discovered them, and when I've you know, been reading some other things just recently – uh, on some mailing lists that I'm on that, suggest, that suggest it's common enough would be that the, you know, when I was growing up, the way you discover them would be in the local library and in local bookstores and very much in, in, in used bookstores. Yes. Because you know, used bookstores were where all those, I mean, by the time I started buying books when I was eight years old with my own money, so it's like 1972 or three, um, right. by that point, all the old, like, you know, the, the 50s paperbacks and stuff are in um, used bookstores, and that's where I'm, I'm finding Edgar Rice Burroughs, and where I'm finding Doc Smith, and where I'm finding you know, stuff like that, which, which I, I read at that point in my life. Um, you don't find those things, but you know, now I, I would suggest you for 95% of people, maybe 99% of people, who encountered Doc Smith for the first time in 2013, 14, 15, mm-hmm. it'll be because for some reason they felt they needed to do some research into the history of science fiction and they went deliberately searching for those books and found them either through some out-of-print mechanism or some mm-hmm. small – and acquired them that way because they're not freely available. And even when they were freely available for a while through the older books, you know, in, you know, publication oh. of them, they were still yeah. very much uh, period pieces. And they were they were presented that way, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, with, with some justification because they read that way. But um, they read that way. But uh, to go back before the old Earth reprints of them, there were the back in I think seventies, maybe the sixties, the Bantam reprint of them. All the Doc Savage things were reprinted in mass market paperback, not as nostalgia items, but mm-hmm. as your uh, flat out adventure. I don't think people uh, discover them that way. And there's a theory which I had about people entering science fiction, uh, and it had to do with who. It has to do with science fiction being a working class kind of literature. Um, and 
because so many people entered science fiction from mm. used bookstores, which meant they were of an economic class that had to go to used bookstores to find things to buy. Yeah. Whereas people who had better educated, wealthier parents would get new books, they would go to new bookstores. Yeah. So, uh, and, and in addition to which science fiction books characteristically tended to be the books that people would read and turn back into the used bookstore. Yeah. The, the standard used bookstore mantra around the world was, you know, bring two paperbacks back and get another one. Yeah. And, and people would do that for years. What I'd like to know, are we in the generation yet? And it's a generation probably younger than even the youngest science fiction writers. Well, somebody's first experience with science fiction is Clark's World. No. No? Not Clark's World. I don't World, think so. No. I think that, not Clark's well, World. Well, no. maybe. And I, I'm not dissing Clark's World at all, uh, which is a fine publication. But first mm -hmm. of all, I think that it sits on the other side of the entry. Uh, okay, that could be. That could kind be, of thing. Yes. It, it, you know, that, that's something that it, I think even if you encountered it casually, if you'd never read science fiction, and I'm not sure how you would, but if you encountered it, I'm not sure that it would actually be welcoming to you as a thing to read cold. What would be? Uh, oh, John Scalzi, you know, frankly. Uh, okay. But, but also, don't, I mean, don't forget, okay, we try and imagine what the gateway drug for reading science fiction might be. Yeah. And yet, what's the number one motion picture out there at the moment? Or what have the last handful been? Was it the Avengers movie, the Iron Man 3 movie, or the Hobbit? Or is it Star Trek Into Darkness? Mm. Um, so for a start, half your gateway drug will be that, I would suggest yes, to you. And also, I mean, I find it interesting, the major um, independent bookstore in the area that I live in, Planet Books, which is a mm. mainstream bookstore, and you know, a little bit counterculturally, has big sections of books on tattoos and music and history, and has its own music store upstairs, that kind of thing. You look at their the new release section of their bookstore, right? Uh -huh. And half to two thirds of the titles are science fiction or fantasy titles. Interesting. And they call that well, it's it's this new release fiction. New release fiction, and this is one thing that science fiction writers have been frankly whining about for decades is why aren't we in the mainstream of fiction why are we segregated in, 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 in sections that are usually at the back of the story I had somebody explain to me actually a buyer for it must have been borders that you know why do they always put science fiction in the back of the store and the answer was because people who come in looking for science fiction will go to the back of the store and in order to get there they have to go past all the tables full of special offers and that's, that's true uh, and it's mystery readers are the same way so, so it will draw people too the fact is that putting a lot of science fiction or fantasy books in mainstream sections causes them to disappear maybe, unless you know to look for them. Maybe so, but I look at th this bookstore as a possible model, and it is very successful. It has a major you know, new release section at the front divided into fiction and nonfiction, and that's where the new Joe Abercrombie book is, and mm -hmm. that's where the new Bill Gibson book is, and that's where the new Al Reynolds book is. And there are people I've met there who read Al Reynolds who don't read science fiction. And okay, it, that's mm -hmm. that's fascinating. Yeah, it is. That's fascinating to me because uh, now Reynolds isn't that easy to read compared to if you have no knowledge of the sort of basic uh, template of science fiction. He's not that uh, entry level. He's not he's not scalzy entry level. No, no. And I mean, I think Al, would, who listens to the podcast, hi Al, would mm -hmm. be would not be offended to say that if I said that you know. Every word he's written is science fiction. Mm. You know, or at least every story, the individual words are just words. But um, so the fact that people are not identifying it to themselves as science fiction is interesting. It's like I can read, I can see Star Trek, and I can read Al Reynolds, but not be interested in science mm. fiction, which is kind of interesting. And I can read Joe Abercrombie because I like George Martin, but I don't like that fantasy stuff. Right, and I, I think George Martin is another excellent example of that. And you know, a generation a generation ago, before George George Martin, there was Steve Donaldson. I met any number of readers. Yeah. Uh, the fact that I the fact that I knew Steve Donaldson impressed more people than the fact that I knew almost any other writer for a while. Uh, and they were not people who went on to read other fantasy. They only wanted to read Thomas Covenant books. My, my there are people. Mm. Mm, sorry, I can tell you continue. Sorry. Uh, well, I was going to say I. I'm, I'm sure that's true of Terry Goodkin and, and, and various other people. Uh, but uh, the people I happened to run into were people who were just, they wanted that particular book. There, and, 
this has nothing to do with how well the book represents the genre. There are all kinds of people I've called Terry Pratchett's another one, Neil Gaiman's one. People will read anything by Terry Pratchett, but that doesn't lead necessarily into yeah. other fantasy or, or science fiction novels. That's very true. And I think someone like, say, George Martin spends a lot of time, try and I know Neil Gaiman spent a great deal of time, trying to act as a gateway drug almost deliberately. You know, let me mm -hmm. point you on to the next things that inspired me. And I don't know with how much success. I will say, when I was interested, that probably the greatest reaction I've had from anybody about knowing somebody was when my 60-something-year-old brother-in-law who is a oh. retired air traffic controller uh, mm -hmm. and who is not by any remote measure a geek, uh, when he found out that I knew George Martin, was gobsmacked uh -huh. because he adores uh -huh. the TV show. Hasn't read the books, oh, wouldn't the touch the books, yeah, loves Game of Thrones. Hmm. You know, so... Well, the fact is, 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 I'm impressed by the fact that he would recognize George Martin as being the creator of that in the first place. Well, it is kind of all over it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, partly, one of the things I think that has made Game of Thrones work, other than the fact that it's a very well-done uh, TV production, mm -hmm. is that George knew his way around Hollywood, knew his way oh, around yeah. television, had worked on The Twilight Zone, had worked on uh, Beauty and the Beast. And so uh, his sort of media savvy, even though he is as loyal as any superstar writer has ever been to the field, he shows up at World Cons all the time, he remembers his friends, he's uh, one of his... One of the recent reissued books is um, a collection of early stories called Tough, what's the title of it? Tough Voyaging. Uh, yes, Tough Voyaging. Um, and to some extent, I think he also really wants people to go back from Game of Thrones. They would like him to, they, he would like them to read his earlier works, obviously. But he'd also like them to, to move beyond that into the field. Yes. Um, so th th there, there is that kind of idealism, but... I think you're right. I don't think that necessarily your brother-in-law is going to ever read George, let alone move beyond George. And I don't think that a majority of Neil Gaiman readers are going to go on and read what they do. I admire writers who do this. One of the books I read uh, recently is uh, The Best of Connie Willis, which yes. is uh, – it's, it's called The Best of Connie Willis, but in you know, parentheses, it's simply called that because these are all the Hugo and Nebula award-winning stories. Yeah. Uh, which, which by itself is impressive. How many people can put together a huge anthology of nothing but Hugo and Nebula award winning yeah, yeah. What's interesting is that her story notes and her introduction are all talking about uh, people from Heinlein to Kit Reed to um, uh, Sturgeon, people who had shaped her career. And she's another writer who really wants people to understand where she came from. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if her readers follow her into... It'd be interesting to know, wouldn't it? I mean, I, I, yeah. again, the great example. Look at Neil Gaiman. He, he writes a Lafferty pastiche in uh, Sunbird. Yes. But did anybody follow on read any R.A. Lafferty? Assuming they could even find him right now. Um, and he was difficult to find when I entered the field in the mid-80s. Mid um, or, um, you know, he, he wrote a Jack Vance Dying Earth story. Um, mm -hmm. And yet I wonder how many people went on to read, you know, Jack Vance. Uh, though that was de you know, obviously deliberately part of his intent, I, I, I would suggest. Uh, so I, I, look, it's it's interesting. I mean, how, how, it'll be interesting to see how the way people find work evolves over the coming ten or twenty years. I mean, right now, when you get into the field, I think you see some younger people, I guess, talking to old old farts like us, Gary, and then going back and trying some older stuff, or sometimes kind of going, well, I came along and you know, I didn't start reading science fiction until the 2000s, and I don't care, and go away, which is also fair enough, because, I don't know, when I went back, I once I entered the field in the 80s, if I hadn't really read stuff from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, I didn't particularly go back, I was already kind of done with it, you know, I didn't go back in the mid-80s to read old A. Van Vogt, I'd read it. And I can't imagine going back to read it now, and I can't imagine recommending anybody should. Oh, I could recommend that people should, but uh, but should in the sense of wanting to understand what the sort of yeah, uh, yeah. substructure, what the archaeology of the field is, what the geology of the field is, if you will. Um, and it, it's it's still very rare that you have somebody, well, like our, our good friend Karen Burnham, who yeah. sets out a program of reading what's people like you and I, and especially yeah. Charles Brown and Dordrude, but she's preparing herself to be a reviewer and critic, and she wants to know you know, what she needs to know about that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think we all have gaps in reading. I, of course we do. I, I do have friends who are who just consistently read science fiction and nothing else. I think that's limiting. 
my own experience was interesting because I had I, I read all this stuff. I mean, I read Van Vogt. I bought yep. paperbacks. I bought um, until I was um, in college, and in college you just didn't have as much time. So there was a period of most of the seventies that I missed. Yeah, uh, I was just doing undergraduate work. I was doing graduate work. I was getting a doctorate and so forth. And when it came to actually finishing all the academic stuff I had to do, there was a whole decade of things like fantasy and science fiction, which I used to subscribe to. I'd missed it. And I thought, should I go back and pick up that? And I started to, and then the stuff that was coming out in the 80s was so much more interesting, actually. That's when Neuromancer <laughs> was coming out. So I thought, okay, so there's a decade where I'm pretty much missing because I didn't feel obligated to go back and read back into the field. Yeah. And I don't think anybody should feel obligated no, to do that. No, I don't that. think they should. Yes. I, I will say that you almost inspire me, and I say almost because, you know, who has time? You almost inspire me to say that we should add a irregular feature to this podcast. Now, every time we've talked about adding a feature to the podcast, we've enthusiastically agreed that it was a great idea and then forgotten to do it. Yes. And we could we could have a thing where we picked a book we both realized we've overlooked and not read. I was going to say exactly the same thing. We had... Uh, in the early early years of the podcast, back yes. shortly after the war, yeah. we had our uh, books you don't need to read thing. Yeah. Um, and I think for a few weeks we actually talked about famous books that you and I couldn't finish reading. Yes. And now there's we we can talk about a list of books that we missed, books yes. that we should have read and I just missed. But then we'd have to. Um, and I will tell. Yeah. Well, I will I will start off with this because a few. Um, uh, some time ago, we did uh, well. Unfortunately, I think one of our maybe one of our famous lost podcasts was dealing with C.J. Cherry. Yes, I missed the beginning of her career, basically. Okay. How and early? The first so couple of books are a bit rough, but yeah. <laughs> I may have read the first couple. I remember reading Citine. Oh God, um, that's that's a long way in. That's like twenty books in, Gary. Well, but I know that's one. That's, <laughs> that, that was when I came back into the field. Uh huh. And I missed the stuff that went before that. Um. My my understanding of Anne McCaffrey, I'm giving my age now, but my appreciation of Anne McCaffrey came from The Ship Who Sang. Yeah. I read the Dragon Balls, but I liked The Ship Who Sang a lot, and I thought That's she was doing something very good. Right. Or at least I remember – no, it's interesting you should say that because I remember it as being very good. Yeah, I will now mm – -hmm. and dear listeners, you can't see this. I've just scooted halfway part, like a, a couple inches across my office and picked up the original copy of The Ship Who Sang – that I acquired back in the 1970s that I wow. read and loved and adored and which in 1985, when she came to Perth, she signed for me. They, oh, for, for people who, for people who are listening to it, I'm actually watching Jonathan on uh, <laughs> FaceTime now. So he was showing me Anne McCaffrey's autograph, which no, I do not have one and it's too bad. It's too late. Hey, look, my, um, my, my 1971 Corgi paperback with uh, Vincent DeFate cover, I believe, um, uh -huh. really is not going to be collectible with or without an Ed McCaffrey signature in it. But it is a piece of history for me in the sense that I look back at this batch of stories and it's fascinating to me that where did the, where did they appear, Gary? I would imagine, let me see, Ed McCaffrey's thought of herself as a, I would imagine they might have been an astounding I got a funny. I th yeah, I, I think they're astounding. I know that that's where the first of the the Pern stories appeared. Uh huh. So I mean, she was an analog writer of her day, and it's a whole other issue and another thing on another podcast that I've done. I, episode. I remember talking to her when she was guest of honor at World Fantasy. Yeah. Um, and she was she was very grateful to be recognized, and she was a little peeved that it was World Fantasy. Yes. Rather than Worldcom, because she kept saying people are reading these dragon stories as fantasy, and everything in them is science fiction. Yes. Uh, and 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 she literally, literally went to her grave arguing that. Yes. Um, and I think it's a legitimate argument, but I think she also recognized that a lot of her readers and a lot of what made her books bestsellers um, were clearly thinking these books were fantasy. Yeah. Okay, we but almost she, touched on something. Hang on. We, we almost touched on something. We skipped on something. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pin you okay. down because I wouldn't mind doing this. Uh, oh, okay. He's gonna, yeah. Okay. Here, you ready to be pinned down? Okay. C.J. Yeah, Cherry. C.J. Cherry. Okay. So you're telling me uh -huh. you want to, you want to read an early C.J. Cherry book? Yeah. Okay. And do you, like the major Hugo winner or one of the major early ones or what? The first, the first, because you know C.J. Cherry way better than I do. The first C.J. Cherry novel that 
that made her a major figure. Remember, she was one of the first great female writers of hard SF. She was. Um, and what was what what made that reputation? For I her? would suggest you would choose one of three books. Mm-hmm. Gate of Ivrel, by uh, which is one of the first of the pardon me, <coughs> Chronicles mm-hmm. of Morgaine, which is a, a, a science mm-hmm. fantasy uh, series that she did. Right. And that got attention. The Pride of Channer, which is a science fiction slash space opera book, or, or Down Below, which is the Down Below Station, which is the first really big Merchant or Alliance book. Well, Down Below Station I read because Down Below Station was too big to ignore. Well, that's 1981. And actually, interesting, mm. Pride of Channer, which I, it was actually about the same time. So, you know, you could do Pride of Channer or you could do um, you could do Gate of Ivrol, I would suggest. Uh-huh. The, the other ones, I mean, there's, there's a few others, a couple of early short story collections, and there was books like Brothers of Earth and Wave Without a Shore, but they were they were fairly minor. Yeah. So are, are, you, are you going to read this book, Gary? Or whichever one that we pick, if we pick one? Well, you know, if, if, if you people at Locust would stop sending me things that I have to read... <laughs> I, might, I might go back and read some things like this. I mean, um, that's the other question we've probably talked about, not enough, and it's something I'd love to hear our listeners talk about. How do you balance things? Now, admittedly, if you're doing a monthly column, you've got four or five books a month you have to read. And that means if you're going to read on your own, you've got to read two or three books in the, the spaces yes. in between. Yeah. And sometimes I want to read a mainstream novel. Sometimes I want to read a nonfiction book. Sometimes I will go back and try to pick up something I missed before. But the time is limited, and I'm sure everybody who's listening to us is dealing with the same issue of my time is limited. Uh, I want to know what's going on. Uh, I want to be sort of involved and engaged with the field. And yes, here's a classic C.J. Cherry novel I need to read. Here is, uh, but, but here's a new China medieval novel, which I have to read. And it's also something I want to read. I will say uh, The Pride of China is 200 pages long. Oh, Okay. Which does but, make it easier I mean, than to say, let's read Stanton's and Stanton's Zanzibar, okay? Uh. Uh, well, that's the other thing I can do occasionally is I will maybe not reread something, but Stand on Zanzibar was an interesting thing to mention because it's related to 2312, to Kim yes, Stanley Robinson's novel, yes. uh, both of which are indebted to uh, John Dos Passos. Yes. In addition to which, I've put a plug in for a series that I'm sort of informally consulting on. There is a nonfiction study of John Brunner, the first a book-length study of John Brunner by somebody named Jad Smith, who's not been a scholar in the field before. And one of the things you realize, okay, uh, Stand on Zanzibar and The Sheep Look Up and The Shockwave Rider are very interesting books. They were not in the mainstream. Nobody thought of The Shockwave Rider really as being any kind of connection to what became cyberpunk, but it really has a lot of connections. Um, I'll go back and look at those books because I want to see how Stan, for example, has made use of some of those things. Yes. But to go back and reread all of Stan on Zanzibar, uh, <laughs> Locust for a month, maybe I will. Or, or Dahlgren, you know, time to go back and read Dahlgren, Dahlgren again. I want, to, I want to go back and reread all of the Book of the New Sun. Yep, uh, really? Oh, hang on. Now, when you say all of the New Sun, Gary, let us clarify oh. for, for, you know, do you mean the original quartet? Or do you mean all 13 or 15 volumes or whatever it is? I mean I mean the original quartet because I don't know if I could follow the next volumes. I never finished all 13. I don't. I finished the quartet. I read um, a couple of the Book of the Long Sun, and at some point I just ran out of time. Um, I know. I didn't finish the Book of the New Sun. Um, but the thing is, I'm a more sophisticated reader now, and this is the other thing that happens <laughs> Thank you for that. I thought that you were well, going to say I'm a more sophisticated reader than you. <laughs> no, I wasn't going to. I'm a more sophisticated reader than was the first time. Uh, I, I, I was talking to we had this. I was talking to Neil Gaiman about this uh, because he showed up uh, in Chicago a year ago in March to present this Lifetime Achievement Award to to Gene, and it reminded me of something that had happened at WorldCon in Montreal. I'm pretty sure wasn't that where Neil was guest of honor? Yeah, it was. Uh, and. So there was there was a panel discussion. It was a panel discussion. It was a discussion between Neil and myself, and um, we. It was not an interview. There was going to be an. It's just a discussion. Whatever you want to talk about. And of course, thousands of people showed up because millions of people showed up because it was Neil. All of them asking, "Who's that guy?" And somebody came up to me afterwards, and said, uh, "You guys just had, you know, uh, you had a. You, you could talk about anything you want to. You had an audience." packed with hundreds of people uh, there to see 
obviously Neil Gaiman and to find out insights. And you spent the first 15 minutes talking about how to read the opening pages of Gene Wolfe's novel Peace, which both Neil and I were utterly fascinated by. Yeah. Because both of us had the same experience of reading that novel and thinking, this is a sort of sweet novel about a nice elderly gentleman who is uh, re- reminiscing about his life in this Midwestern town. And then and we both had the experience of reading it later and thought, okay, this guy has killed everybody he's ever met. <laughs> none of that is stated anywhere in the novel. And so you had that experience of thinking, okay, reading Gene Wolfe the first time is not enough. And Gene knows this, and he's perfectly – but I haven't had a chance to go back and pick up all the stuff I missed in that. Yeah. I have not had a chance to re-read R.A. Lafferty, no. who was full of things that I didn't uh, pick up the first time around. No, that, that, that chance will come around in the new year. Um, you're firing me? Yes. Uh, or, oh, there, okay. or there's going to be some more R.A. Lafferty in print, so anyway. Can, well, uh, Lafferty uh, but, but actually, you know that person who um, spoke to you – didn't understand to me mm-hmm. when I hear you tell that story. It's that you that you and Neil weren't talking about Gene Wolfe at all. You were talking about how to read. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what it was. Um, and I think the notion, one of the notions that we were trying to get at, and I think it applies to Neil's work as well, especially a really nuanced work like The Ocean at the End of the Lane, uh, is that, yes, you pay attention to science fiction the way you would pay attention to any other fiction. Uh, it rewards rereading. It rewards reading carefully and slowly. It rewards for reading more than for plot. And this mm. has always been it's always been true. I mean, 900 Grandmothers does not it's, – it's, 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 it's something if you read the second time, you realize this is a very spectacular novel, which I probably didn't short know. Short story. Time, and that's what, short, short, story. Short, short story, rather. I'm sorry. What am I thinking of? Um Oh, I'm thinking of 900 Grandmothers. I'm thinking of the book 900. That's a short story collection. But but the story the story itself is yeah. one that yeah. uh, you, you read the second time around. Um, so that kind of thing is exactly the point I think we were trying to make is that uh, you can everything that you were told in school about reading carefully and understanding. And I'm not talking about picking up symbolism. I'm, I'm talking. Yeah. I'm not talking about the things that English teachers teach you to. Uh, look for figures of speech, symbolism, themes, and that sort of thing, that there are complications, there are subtexts, there are uh, ways of reading the novel, which the novel will teach you. One of the things that came up for discussion a lot this weekend at WISCON was Caitlin Kernan's The Drowning Girl, which we have talked about before on this podcast. And that is a novel with multiple levels of reliability, of, Mm of, it's in many ways, as somebody put it to me this weekend, it's a story about trying to learn how to tell a story. Yes. Uh, this narrator is desperately trying to figure out, first of all, what's happening to her, and secondly, how to talk about it. And that complexity is, for some people, uh, initially saying, well, I want a suspense story, I want a horror story, I want, I want a payoff here. Um, if, you, if you sit still and realize what she's doing, it becomes immensely more powerful. Yes, and, that's true. And I think more and more writers, this is part of the frustration I think that science fiction and fantasy and horror writers have, that more and more of these sophisticated techniques are being employed by writers such as Caitlin uh, and such as Peter Straub and such as M. John Harrison. Um, And the problem is bringing the readers along with them. Yes. The problem, it seems to me, is if you have a reader, and I know Stephen King has complained about this, I know Peter has talked about this, if you write something which is a straight-ahead, uh, really spectacular horror novel, and everybody likes it, and they're really grossed out by it, and then the next one has unreliable narrators and metafictional tricks and all sorts of things, and it, the hope is that the readers will follow you yeah. into this new area, and many of them will. Many of them do. Uh, but some of them are saying to these writers, why don't you do what you did before? Because I, I like that. I wanted more of that. I'd like it too, please. Yes, Exactly. It comes up whenever you talk with a writer who um, wants to move beyond the formula that they started with. And a lot of writers that we know began with formula fiction. A lot of writers who I know still write formula fiction mm-hmm. and write it with a level of sophistication that, uh, that they hope readers will understand. We've mentioned, uh, I, I, only, I only mentioned Karen Travis because I think she's the only one who's. Um, Star Wars novels I've read. 
Okay. I've read one. Okay, I read one of Elizabeth Hands. Yep. Um, and I know Karen Travis is trying to do the sort of things in a Star Wars novel that she would do in a Karen Travis novel. Yeah. Um, whether or not Star Wars readers are picking up on that, I have no idea. We should talk to Karen sometime. We, we should. It'd be interesting. It's like to do that. Yes. Um, but uh, I, where we were going with that, I guess, is yeah. The the point you were making is that we want Neil and I at that. Uh, discussion we're trying to say to the audience read us as seriously as you would read anything uh or read him i'm not a fiction well, yeah, 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 yeah. but um, but then you also get the thing like well maybe i don't want to read you very seriously this weekend at all you know mm-hmm. i mean when i pick there, there are books and i know it's, it's it's well i suspect it's true for many people when you pick up a book sometimes you just want to fall into the story for a while and then yeah. if there's more to it then that can be revealed to you though these days finding time to read it all is the hardest thing of all is it not well, as I say, finding time to read things that you just pick up and would, I mean, I, I would love to know what would happen if I walked down. I have one of the remaining Barnes and Nobles is a block from my apartment where I'm speaking right now. And every once in a while, I wander in there and think, I want to just pick up this book and start reading. And yeah. it may be a science fiction book. It may be, it may yep. be a mainstream novel. Mm-hmm. It may be something like, something in between, like a Karen Russell's Vampires in the Lemon Grove. Sure, sure. Um, and... Yeah, I, but I why don't, don't have you? time to do that. Yeah, but you don't because of, I, because because of your reviewing commitments or life or what? A, a little bit of both. During the uh, during the semester when I'm in classes, I'm teaching classes. I have to read the mm-hmm. things I'm teaching. I have to read the things that are uh, there for locals. I'm reading manuscripts for publishers mm-hmm. sometimes, not, usually not fiction manuscripts. Um, and so it's and, – and, and every time I think about buying a book, I think of the pile, which I'm looking at right now. Of things that I need to be reading, yep. for one reason or another. Yes. And I suspect everybody. I'm, I'm sounding a little bit self-pitying there, but I think everybody has that problem. Yes, except for those who hate you and envy you because you've got whatever that book is on your pile that they won't get for another six months. Oh. It's like just a, a brief shout out to anybody to people who listen to this podcast at the time it goes out. Um, our friend James Bradley managed to get a copy of the new Graham Joyce novel and is reading it right now, The Year of the Firebird. Oh, See, we okay, hate him a little bit, don't we? That shows how little clout I have as a as, – as I've been reviewing for Locus since 1913, as everybody knows, and I can't get the new Graham Joyce novel and James has it? Absolutely. Mm. And, and I, I stopped in at my friend's bookstore on the weekend, and I'm not, I'm not deliberately sort of pointing out our friends at Golan's the, the, the premier science fiction imprint in the world who aren't obviously sending us galleys on a regular basis because they had um, the new Stephen Baxter book, Pro- Proxima, his new planetary romance. They had, uh-huh. they, had the, they had the galley behind the counter at their bookstore. But did we have a copy? No. Doesn't matter. Yeah. No, Gary, we don't mind. We'll just sit here. And meanwhile, I'm getting – not, not necessarily being sent to me from Locus, but for those people who are, who are really angry that they aren't getting a book that I've got uh, that's coming out in July or August. I've, I've got, I'm looking at some books right now. They should be grateful that they won't have to look at these books until <laughs> July or August. They should be grateful for the period. One of them is a book by a writer, a very well-known science fiction writer, who is I find it extremely morally problematical. You realize, that what's actually, that you realize what's actually happening here, Gary, is we need a new ha- hashtag. This would be elitist first world problems. You're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> You know, we don't have our advanced special sneak peek to something just yet. And gosh, that's terrible. We should have it first. You know, even well, though, I suppose there, you know, even though we've we, been talking. Yeah. Well, we've talked about our privilege. I mean, we are both, you know, classically privileged, uh, upper middle class white males. And we have access to advanced reading copies of books that even most of Upper middle class white males don't have to, but it turns out we don't really. We only have some access to some books. <laughs> well, in fairness, uh, Gary, if we were more energetic about it and asked more, we'd probably get it rather than expecting to have it showered on our heads. True, uh, but there was um, uh, uh, oh, oh, I was. Oh, wait a minute, I just remembered something. What's that? You you cornered me with the C.J. Cherry thing. We were I going did, to talk about gaps in our reading. Yes, what? Did you miss what? But in your adult reading life, there must be classics of science fiction and sure. fantasy that you simply haven't read. I've never read *Downwards to Earth* by Robert Silverberg. Really? Yeah. How's that possible? He's a friend of yours. He's a good friend of mine, and I 
like him very, very much, and I respect him immensely. But I read, I first read Bob when Majapur came out, and then went back mm. and read stuff. Oh. And in fact, I think it was it was somebody tweeting the other day that made me realize that I I'm 99.9% sure that I've not read Downwards to Earth. Well, this is the other thing. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned 99% sure because um, there's the other problem of books that you are pretty sure you've read, but yeah, maybe not uh, <laughs> because you just don't remember. I, in terms of Bob Silverberg, I was reading the magazine stories. I'm pretty sure I read Revolt on Alpha C. Yeah. I must have. I was reading a bunch of ace doubles at that time. and it's a, But ask me what happened in Revolt on Alpha C. I have no clue. I have no idea what happened in that book. Well, you see, so we, we could we could read those two books sometime, mm -hmm. maybe, if we ever do it. I had another idea, apart from the fact that saying, see, when, when Marianne and I got married, we, we merged our book, our book collections. And I'm going to hold up a book, dear listeners. I've never read that, have you? Yes, I have. Getting uh -huh. into Death and Other Stories by Thomas Dish. I was, uh, there were a few writers, and I came a little bit after this. I mean, I'm not quite a new wave person, but uh, I will tell you what happened with Thomas Dish. Uh, there are two novels. I read Camp Concentration. Yeah, it's uh, a book. And it's a classic book. It's, uh, it's, 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 it literally is a classic book. It should be. And, but I didn't, it didn't strike me as being that bizarre and amazing. What happened was I eventually read On Wings of Song. Okay, yeah. Which just blew me away. I mean, yep. I never read anything like On Wings of Song. I yep. wasn't sure if it was science fiction or fantasy, but just uh, one of the great American novels, I thought. On Wings of Song was one of the things that, you know, I thought belonged in a class with John Crowley's Little Big and a handful of other things. After that, I went back and read all of the Thomas Dish short fiction I could. Okay, yeah. Uh, that's how I found getting into that. Okay. Well, can I say one of the gifts that a, a retrospective collection today gives to me and this really is a rarefied thing, and I don't think most people would worry about it. It gives me permission to spend the time to go back and reread something because it's a new book. Mm -hmm. And in the context of the things that we do, that becomes relevant. You know, So if well, someone were to do a Best of Thomas M. Dish, for example, mm -hmm. then that would give me permission to spend the time to go off and reread it, even though I get very funny about spending any time reading short fiction that's not mandatory required short fiction reading at the moment but yeah well i mean one of the reasons let's plug ourselves for a minute here and plug our friend joe haldeman yes one of the reasons you and i did the best of joe haldeman is it both gave us gave us both permission to go back and read absolutely absolutely yes. maybe we had not read in years yes and surprisingly and not surprisingly at all but gratifyingly enough they they held up yes i will say just as a quick sort of service announcement whilst the best of joe holderman went out of print at the publisher on the day of publication you still can find copies around in a few um uh online locations and whatever else and i recommend that if you want a copy you have a have a search around because it will be completely gone pretty darn soon mm. i would think i would think so oh. i don't remember seeing any copies in the dealer's room at wiscom for example no, 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 no. Th those would be well and truly gone. That, that's all on the inside. So, yes. Mm -hmm. Now, there was a, something I was going to have us discuss, but we're getting towards the end of the, the podcast. And I don't know if we've got time. But we, as we sit here, Gary, it's the 27th of May here in, in Perth and probably the 26th of May there in Chicago. Yes, and so, so depending on how you clock it, we're four or five days from nominations for the World Fantasy Awards closing. Have you nominated yes. the World Fantasy Awards, Gary? I'm glad you mentioned that because I haven't. And those of us who haven't should be, I don't know, punished in some way, but I'll do it. I will do it. I will absolutely do that. And, um, and, and just, everybody, yeah, sorry. You go to the world fantasy award website and there will be a link to where you can vote. Yes. And if I remember, I'll, leave, I'll even put it in the, in the show notes if I remember, because okay. we do pretty lame show notes, but if I remember, I'll put a link to the page where you can get the ballot. And mm. I would encourage everybody, whatever it is that you want to support, I don't even want to, imply or suggest particular things like under my hat or the crude street podcast or anything else or locus you know because i still find it spectacularly mm. odd that in the entire history of the world fantasy awards charles brown and or locus and or liza trombi have never been nominated for professional or non-professional um so that would be be nice but the main thing is mm. to get get the forward and nominate before the time runs out and the topic i want to touch on briefly at least is the lifetime mm. achievement award because yes. Gary Kay, I had to sit there and have a bit of a think about who I would put up for the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award. 
and I wasn't immediately you know, sure. There was one, the, the name that always comes to mind and has for the last five or six years was still the first one I thought of. And I would exhort everybody to consider um, this nomination because one of the rules as we understand it but behind the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Royal Fantasies is that uh-huh. if you are dead, you can't be nominated. Right. Now, if you happen to die in the, you know, sort of that year, you know, so for example, you're talking about Basil Copper, who, who passed right, away exactly. recently, sadly, um, or Stephen Utley, who passed away recently, they would be eligible this year, but then not thereafter. Not thereafter, yes. I'd like to exhort everybody to consider Mary Stewart. Mary Stewart is still Most alive people, at age 96. Yes, and I've asked people about this. Uh, she's, I mean, I, whether, I, I think she may be in some kind of care facility. I think somebody told me that. Um, I think that's one name that uh, is overlooked simply because so few people realize that she's still alive. Yes. Well, but the Crystal Cave, I mean, I, th- I think a lot of what we consider now uh, to be historical fantasy, and I think including classics like uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley's The Mist of mm-hmm. Avalon, all had their roots in Mary Stewart historical novels, yeah. which I think the other thing about that is that they were published as historical novels, not as historical fantasies. Yes. But, so but a lot of people... Go ahead. But, but I mean, but, but that only just underscores that books, you know, like the original Mer- Merlin trilogy, particularly you know, The Crystal Cave, The Hollow Hills, and The Last Enchantment, are key touchstone works in the history of our field. And so to have a major creator who's still alive and could be recognized, and, and mm. it, it seems such a no-brainer. I mean, I don't know if any of the judges, the current judges for the World Fantasy Awards, uh, listen to this podcast, uh, though we might shout out to them, hello, Holly Black and Tom Clegg and Mark, Mark Laidlaw and Stephen Laws and mm. Stephanie Smith. Uh, but I would exhort them to consider, and I would exhort people nominating to consider Mary Stewart, because I think she would be a fantastic recipient. I'd also say that. I think would. Yeah. I'd also say. Go ahead. That, yeah, you get, you get two possible nominees. You know, or two, there, there will be two recipients each year, right? And there's a generational change that's happened. There are people who I grew up reading in the in the 1980s. No, didn't maybe didn't encounter in the 70s, but in the 1980s. And who had the, the real first flush of their careers in the 1980s in a big way, those people are now solidly eligible for the World Fantasy Award. Though, when you I mean when you first consider them or hear their names, you might think they're a little bit young. <clears throat> and I'd start by pointing Project. out that, that well, I'll point out to you that George Martin was a recipient just I think last year, or right. the year before. Uh, let me start with Howard Waldrop. Howard Waldrop is 66 years old. Has, yeah. in, has in his career written about 80 short stories, uh, including some genuine, as far as I'm considered, all-time classics in the history of the field, uh, like uh, The Ugly Chickens, uh, like, yeah. I mean, I could, I could go through a whole list of stories, but I, I won't. <clears throat> and so I think that we, you know, someone like him would be a really, really interesting uh, person to, to recognize. Now, I guess you could ask, does someone who operates in a nostalgia-driven, more slightly science-fictional alternate history approach mesh with the World Fantasy Awards. And I would argue that he does, and that mm-hmm. stuff, stuff like Do You Do You Want to Dance and Wild Wild Horses and A Dozen Tough Jobs uh, should qualify. I mean, A Dozen Tough Jobs is a retelling of the 12 labors of Hercules set in the Deep South, which is fantastic. Or his alternate history novella, You Could Go Home Again, set on a Zeppelin returning home from Tokyo in 1941 after the uh, the, the Olympics, which had happened in Berlin, had been rescheduled to Berlin, with uh, J.D. Salinger as the cruise director on the, the Zeppelin. The cruise director, yeah, and you and you mentioned um, the ugly chickens. I mean, there, there's p- part of the DNA of the field are stories like flying saucer rock and roll, I suppose. They are. Um, but he's also somebody who's not been especially prolific, and I think that is something that tends to work against uh, a popular vote. Well, well, that's true. Though, though I'll, I'll sit there and I'll maintain that anybody who's written, okay, between seventy-two and twenty-twelve, he's written seventy or eighty short stories, yeah. and has probably had. A core group of about six major short story collections: Howard Who, All About Strange Monsters of the Recent Past, right. Night of the Cooters, Going Home Again, uh, Heart of Whiteness, 
uh, horse of a different color because that's coming out later this year. There's a new uh, Lucia, uh, so a new um, Waldrop collection coming out this year. I think he would be a very, very worthy recipient, and some of those should be considered very carefully. And the other one on my mind, and I realize that I'm bouncing around amongst white men, mm-hmm. is Lucia Shepard. Um, a, a many a many time many time world fantasy recipient, also now able to get a free bus pass in the United States and pick up a pension. He's sixty five years old. Uh, last year, the Dragon Grey All, which is probably the closest we will ever come to seeing the Grand Tour published, came out, and mm. is one of the great fantasy collections of both twenty twelve and in our field. I think the Dragon Grey All stories are spectacular, however they're packaged. Mm. Um, and you could make a case through through both his novels, like The Golden, like Kalamantan, um, and through major works of short short fiction. I could go through them through major the, the major collections. I mean, The Jaguar Hunter, The Ends of the Earth, Trujillo, Dagger Key. These are I mean major 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 books. This guy significantly deserves this award. Why do you think he has a lower profile than he has? I mean, there are a lot, there are a lot of people who are science fiction readers who remember life during wartime as, as kind of a classic, but then he, the dragon griots seem to be an entirely different kind of writing. If you call that kind um, of a classic again, I'm going, to, I'm going to growl at you because it's actually one of the great hi- stories in the history of the field. Not just kind of a classic. It's a classic classic, Gary. Stop it. Well, okay. I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is it's is, is a problem with Lucius Shepard that there have been some science fiction readers and then fantasy readers and they don't cross over? I think it's because he's a short fiction writer and he hasn't had a new novel out uh, from a major publisher in many years and he's well, drifted yeah. towards, for whatever reason, mostly being published by the small press. Yeah, His last oh. handful of collections came out from PS Publishing, who are a fine publishing company but aren't going to get you major um, no. coverage. Or from Subterranean, who also are a spectacular publisher and who I love dearly, but are also a small or an independent press and are publishing a couple right, of thousand right. copies. And he's also so it's mainly been short fiction, and quite often in a collector's market aimed at um, you know reasonably pricey books or whatever. Else. So I think that argues against him. I mean, his latest book, which I think you reviewed for Locus Gary, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was Five Biographies and a Fiction. Actually, I didn't, but uh, someone did. I, okay, someone. I, I meant to. I might still do that. Okay. Um, and so, I mean, I got. I, I was. I have a copy, and it's a, mm-hmm. a terrific book with some very, very fine stories in it. Uh, but unless you're handing over a forty-five dollar limited edition, you probably, you know. And I, and he may be at slightly at odds with the flavor of the time, I guess. Well, it might be. I, th- I think when I, when I think of life achievement awards for world fantasy, I think in terms of. Deserving practicing writers and losers yeah. is certainly in that. And then you think of, I think Alan Garner was recognized, or Susan Cooper. Yeah. Or actually, Susan Cooper. Now, Alan Garner did write in that. But essentially, people whose work is mostly decades past. And you mentioned Mary Stewart, for example. Yeah. People may not even realize that she, she's still around. So there is that sense. And it's always been a sense in terms of the administration of the World Fantasy Award yeah. that there are writers who are in danger of being forgotten. Uh, there are writers who need to be recognized even though they're no longer popular or no longer active. And there are writers who um, are currently functioning writers who are barely eligible in terms of the informal yeah. 65-year-old thing. Um, and, how do you, and the idea is, I suppose, to get a balance between those two things. You know, actually, you're making me rethink what I was going to say uh, because you've brought stuff back to mind that had slipped my mind from the past. Here are my three nominees for Lifetime Achievement Award, Gary. Tell me if okay. I'm wrong. Uh, and when you realize, again, that none of them have received this award, you'll sit there and maybe look at the scans. Mary Stewart. Yes. I'll please do it now. Susan Cooper. Yeah. Susan Cooper, it's, it, that's astonishing. I mean, I've heard arguments about Susan Cooper the year I was there I was a judge who came up and and one of the arguments was well when she wrote one series a long time ago it's a series that everybody has read and is still yeah. reading and is still reading yeah um and Robin McKinley Robin McKinley is another very good example of uh, well actually maybe I'd correct that I'm, I'm going to actually amend that because I was going to go for an all-female group but if I'm not mistaken, I don't believe Peter Dickinson has ever received it. And whilst Robin no. McKinley, who's just turned 60, uh, 
is a very worthy recipient. Peter Dickinson, who's 85, um, is would be a very, very, very worthy recipient, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so there you go. But again, part, part, part of this goes back to the discussion we were having earlier. Do, yeah. people, do, do people read back in the field? I mean, one of the advantages that I assume people still read the Crystal Cave. I assume people yeah. still read Mary Stewart. I'm positive that people still read Susan Cooper because yes. those books are taught in schools. Um, yep. So Peter Dickinson, is there any iconic work that unless you're deliberately looking back into the that my my favorite Peter Dickinson novel is a forgotten one called The Blue Hawk. OK. Um, and it's simply something that could be read almost as a historical novel. But I don't think there's an iconic work that the average reader would recognize. Like The Flight of Dragons or something like that, or Eva or Tolku or one of those books? Possibly. Um, yeah. I mean, I know he's more of a YA writer, though he wrote a lot of mysteries for adults. Yeah, he did. And uh, and, and he had been published. He was part of – I think the reason I read The Blue Hawk, I think that was Valentine's part of its adult fantasy series when it sort of moved beyond – classic fantasy into looking yeah. for contemporary things, along with Joy Chant and a few others. Um, so so there's no doubt a huge um, a huge body of important work there. The question is how many of potential how many potential judges or potential public nominees, because there yeah. are both factors in the World Fantasy Awards, are familiar with his work. I don't know. I don't know. Well all I can say is we are but four or five days away from another chance to nominate these people. If you haven't nominated, please, please, please consider. And yeah, do consider Mary Stewart, Susan Cooper, people like mm -hmm. that, people who are yet to be to be recognized and who are well deserving of it. And I mean, I'll always hope that the others will get nominated. I think Howard and Lucius deserve it and a whole bunch of other people. I mean, I really could name probably a dozen and a half writers off the top of my head if I sat here who are worthy, worthy recipients of a Lifetime Achievement Award. I think that's true. I agree. Um... And the next only, year, I guess, yeah. the only exclusion, the World Fantasy Awards are, uh, we're talking awards and conventions having a particular remit. The World Fantasy Awards exclude science fiction. Yes, they do. Uh, uh, and whereas uh, I don't believe the Nebula Lifetime Achievement Award excludes fantasy. So, mm -hmm. so the, World, the World Fantasy Award, which really gravitates, began really gravitating toward the horror end of the spectrum and has broadened to encompass all of fantasy still more or less draws the line of science fiction, as it should, because the World's Fantasy Convention really, as I understood it from our, our friend David Hartwell, was an answer to the World Science Fiction Convention. Yeah. So, so, so there is a sense that, okay, the, the, the Hugos and the, well, the Nebulas cover a huge territory, the Hugos cover a huge territory, but historically those are science fiction awards which are broadened to include fantasy. Yeah. Uh, the World true. Fantasy Award has chosen not to not to broaden itself to include science fiction. I think that's a reasonable decision. I think it is. But, Gary, we run out of time. It is time to wind know. up. We, we snuck a podcast in. You have dinner to get to, and it must be very late. I have to go to dinner, yes. So you, we, we, I, sh I should release you to, to go out into the world and, and, and dine somewhere and you know, hopefully have a fine time until, until we sort of have another go next week, possibly with guests, possibly, possibly from, guests, yes. from Florida, I think you said. I will be in Orlando next week at the board meeting of the International Conference on the Fantastic and the Arts. And sometime after dinner, I will try to find a time when we can. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about this before. We will indeed. But we really, for people, people who don't believe, we keep saying this. This is three weeks in a row. We have lots of guests who are enthusiastic and, and <laughs> who, who want to talk to us and, and who start talking to us. And then it drops out. But we are going to have lots of really exciting guests in the Something. next few weeks. You know what we actually need, Gary? Hmm. We need a producer. We need somebody who can do this work for us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, until such times as magic occurs, we shall have to you know, continue ourselves. We but, will talk soon. Yes. But as always, it has been a pleasure. And I will talk to you next as week. When we Good will night. be, once again, now as always, the Mullers of Crude Street.